Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. All right. Well, um, if you're new to Jacobswell Church, we planted Jacobswell Church about 12 years ago. And a few years after that, we planted a daughter church in Appleton named Emmaus Road Church. Uh, And Emmaus Road Church planted a granddaughter church of ours named Living Stone Church in Oshkosh. And Oshkosh is now planting a great-granddaughter church. That's that right? Great-granddaughter church of ours in Stephen Point with James Lima, who will be preaching to us today. And we're just so excited what God is doing. Uh, you know, it, not many 12-year-olds have great-granddaughters, uh, but Jacobsville Church, we do, which is very exciting. And so through uh, his work through Jacobsville Church over the past 12 years, six churches have been planted, which is about two churches a year. And so we're very thankful for what God is doing. Uh, we have, of course, one at at, that meets at Heritage Hill and the Hispanic plant, uh, which is underway. And so we're just so thankful for God to do that. So James, if you come forward, James will be planting our uh, great-granddaughter church in Stevens Point. Um, but also James has, has served in college ministry for a long time and served part of our daughter church and granddaughter church and now great-granddaughter church. And so we're very excited. Uh, James did a great job on the sermon this morning. Uh, it's a note-taking sermon. So many great treasures in it. So I encourage you. If you're not a note-taker, you might want to take notes today. But thank you, brother, for bringing right. God's word. Yeah, if I was the music director at your daughter church, the associate pastor at your granddaughter church, and the planter of your great-granddaughter church, what does that make? Is there? What am I to you? I, I guess I have I have no idea. Uh, it's great to be here. A great privilege to be able to preach, to bring God's word to you. The church plant is underway and going well. We've launched two Bible studies already over in Stevens Point, walking through the book of Ephesians. And the Lord continues to bring people to us, uh, which is just a great blessing. Uh, One fun update is just yesterday, uh, we got an accepted offer on a house in Stevens Point. We still live in Oshkosh, and we've been driving all the way over to Stevens Point to do ministry there. And the Lord has finally provided a house for us. We put in an offer, it got accepted, and we're going to be moving. So that's a, a big deal for us. Um, so I just ask you to be praying for us. Uh, pray for our church plant. If you know people in Stevens Point, people who are uh, Christians, who love Jesus, who might be interested in partnering with us or would just be good connections for us, let me know. If you know people in Stevens Point that don't know Jesus, we would love to meet them, to welcome them in and to share with them the good news about Jesus. Um, but I really am not here uh, as a church planter. I'm not here to talk about what we're doing. I'm here because... Like every Sunday morning and every day, we need to hear about Jesus. We need to hear the gospel. And Dan invited me to share from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and that's where we're going to spend our time in this morning. So if you want to turn 
in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 16. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can grab one of the red Bibles. It's in the seat in front of you. Uh, it's on page 986 in those red Bibles. Again, page 986. I'll give you a moment to turn there. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 16. Please pay attention to God's holy word. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers." For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are not a distant God or a silent and mute God. We thank you that you draw near to us as your people as we gather to worship and to hear from your word. We are grateful that you are a God who speaks to us in your word. And so by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear this morning. Not just to hear the words of men, or my words, but to hear your words. Father, work in us by your word. Change our hearts, change our minds. Help us to love the things that we ought to love so that we would live in the way that we ought to live for your glory, for the good of our brothers and sisters, for the good of our world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Humans tend to have this sense this internal sense when things don't line up, when things don't match. Let me tell you uh, an example of what I mean here. As I just told you, we found a house in Stevens Point, but in the current housing market, you know, it's pretty hard. We've been looking since August, and so that's part of the reason we're so excited to finally have a house over there. But as we were looking for a house in Stevens Point, a house came onto the market that from the outside looked like your ordinary Wisconsin house. It was brown, it was a 1960s ranch, right, with the garage on the side, a house that you can find in any neighborhood in the state of Wisconsin. But if you went into the house, it would catch you a little bit off guard. You'd walk in the front door, and the first thing you see in the living room is this bright scarlet red wall. And you say, okay, that's an interesting, you know, decision for a design, interior design in a house. But if you like bright red walls in your house, that's okay. We could paint that, right? As you continue to go in, things get a little bit more and more 
unique. Again, no judgment on you if what I describe is your taste in a house. Uh, But, you know, it was tolerable. It was things you could change. But as you went to the the stairs down to the basement, it's like you got uh, transported into a whole other world. It's like you got transported into this fancy upscale cocktail bar from the 1920s in downtown Chicago. It's probably the best way I can describe it. I mean, it had this this black, like, fake marble flooring and this wall molding. It was dark with these, like, opulent, fancy lights and this huge bar. And it's, you know, it's the classic, you know, basement bar of a Wisconsin house. But this was... This was like out of a different world. It's like walking down those steps was actually a time machine, and it transported you to a different place in a different time. And it was neat, right? It was like, this is kind of cool, but it didn't match the house, right? It, it would have fit really well in a fancy cocktail bar in Chicago or New York or some big city, but in a brown ranch in Wisconsin? Really? And again, no judgment on you if that's your taste in the house. If you have one of those in your basement, that's it's up to you. But it seemed like it didn't fit, right? It didn't line up. It didn't match. Perhaps another example uh, would be from the, the Packers game. Is it too, too soon to bring up the Packers game against the 49ers? But I also know that it's, it's an obligation to mention the Packers at least once in a Jacob's Well sermon. So I feel like I can get away with it. We watched the last Packer game with the Greemore family, actually, if you know the Greemores. And you can imagine, and you probably experienced it as well, the mood in the room when Carlson missed that field goal in the fourth quarter. When Jordan Love threw that, that, uh, that game-ending interception. Great, right? We have good hope. You know, it's a young team. You know, the ceiling's high. They can, they can, they'll be better next year. But it hurt. That stung. Nobody's happy. We're all grumbling. We're all moaning, right? Tim Greenmore's weeping in the back. He, he wasn't actually weeping. But you can imagine how weird it would be for a Packer fan in that moment when the field goal is missed, when the interception is thrown, for this Packer fan to stand up and start cheering, to be smiling and laughing and, and celebrating. It would be weird, wouldn't it? It, would, it wouldn't line up. But maybe on a more serious note, what, what would you, you think if you went onto Facebook or some other social media and you saw a friend posting, remembering the death of a loved one, and someone responded to that post with a laughing emoji? Right? It would, it would actually kind of hit you in the gut. That, that's not right. That's not good. People want not to do that. It doesn't line up. We have a friend who says that they're doing good. But you look at their body language and it doesn't line up. You can tell that they're anything but good. If you're a Christian and you're here this morning, does your life line up? Does your life match? If you took an objective outsider's view of your Christian life, would you see a life that matches up with your identity as a follower of Christ and what you've received in the gospel or would you see life that's kind of like that brown ranch with the cocktail bar in the basement, or the cheering Packer fan when they lose the game, or that insensitive friend who commented with a laughing emoji. 
Of course, we all have discontinuities in our life. We all have ways that we don't line up with the truth of the gospel. But by God's grace, what would it look like for us to more and more line up our lives with the truths of the gospel? And that's what we see in our passage today. Paul, by both his example and his exhortation or his teaching, shows us what it looks like for our lives to line up. First, we see a life that matches our gospel proclamation. A life that matches our gospel proclamation. If you were here last week, Pastor Dan walked through verses 1 through 8 of this chapter. One of the things he mentioned in that sermon is that there were people in Thessalonica who were trying to discredit Paul and his ministry. They were critiquing Paul's message. They were critiquing his methods. They were critiquing his motives. They said that Paul wasn't being sincere when he preached the gospel to them, that he was being self-serving, that he was really all about what he could get from these people, get glory from them, get fame from them, get a following, even get money. They essentially said, you can't trust this Paul guy. He's just trying to get something from you. He just wants your money. Don't listen to what he has to say. And last week, Paul began his defense against those critiques, and he did so by calling God as a witness. You can imagine him being in court with all of these accusations being flung at him, and he calls witnesses. Verse 5 from last week, he said, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. And in our passage today, alongside with calling God as a witness, he calls them as a witness. He calls the church, the the Christians, the believers in Thessalonica as a witness in defense of his ministry. Look at how he begins verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9 begins, For you remember. He's calling them to remember something that they had seen. Verse 10, You are witnesses. Verse 11, for you know. Essentially, he's saying, you know how I lived among you. You know how I ministered to you. You watched my way of life. And you know that the way that I lived among you lined up with what I preached to you. And you can trust the message that I proclaimed. And he points to multiple lines of evidence here. First, he points to his hard work. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. We see his hard work that pairs with his proclamation of the gospel. Throughout Paul's missionary journeys, Paul was one of the great church planters, one of the great evangelists in the New Testament. But as he traveled around and he proclaimed the gospel in different cities, he was often supported by other churches, like the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul thanks the church in Philippi for their support of him, their partnership in the gospel, is what he calls it. And elsewhere, elsewhere, Paul makes it clear that he believes that those who proclaim the gospel for their job, for their way of life, whether an evangelist or a missionary or a a pastor and preacher, that they should make their living by the gospel. That's the way it ordinarily ought to work. So what's going on here in Thessalonica? We see that Paul, even though he had the right to be paid for his work among the Thessalonians, set aside that right 
for, that, for their sake. He could have demanded money from them, but he didn't. In fact, we see that he took on a second job as if being an evangelist and a church planter isn't hard enough. And let me tell you, it's hard work. It takes your heart, it takes your soul, it takes your time, it takes your energy. But Paul took on a second job, he worked as a tent maker. He says he worked night and day so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. These critics were saying that Paul was really all about all, everything he could get from these people, but clearly he was actually unwilling to take from them. Instead of take, 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 Paul gave. He gave his time, he gave his energy, he gave his very self for the sake of the gospel that it would go forth among them, that they would trust him, that he would not be a burden to them. And he did this out of love. He did this because he loved the gospel he proclaimed. He did this because he loved the people to whom he proclaimed the gospel. His critics might might charge him with having a greedy motive, but that couldn't be further from the truth if you actually looked at the way that he conducted his life and his ministry. That was clear in his hard work, but also we see secondly in his holy living in verse 10. He says, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. The way that Paul and his companions ministry, Silvanus and Timothy, the way that they treated the Thessalonians, it was marked by godliness, by love, holiness, righteousness, blamelessness. It means that they were above reproach. It means that any critique thrown against them wouldn't stick. It's kind of like the classic test for spaghetti. If you know that it's done, right, you throw this noodle against the wall, and if it sticks, you know it's done. But it's like the accusations were an undercooked spaghetti noodle. You threw it against Paul, and it fell to the ground. The accusations wouldn't stick. And why? Because of the way that he lived among them, because of the way he loved them, because his conduct matched his calling as a preacher of the gospel. My wife is a labor and delivery nurse, which is an amazing calling if you want to talk with her about that after the service. And anyone in healthcare could tell you how important bedside manner is when you're taking care of someone, whether you're a CNA or an occupational therapy assistant or you're a nurse or you're a doctor. The way that you treat the person that you're caring for is of high importance. Why? Well, it's because your calling toward that person is one of love and one of service. You're called to be there for their good, for their health, to make sure that if something's wrong, you are there to make it right. And if you imagine a doctor or some other healthcare worker walking into the room, maybe you've been treated this way, praise the Lord that most of the healthcare workers I've interacted with are loving and kind people. But you can imagine a doctor who walks in who's gruff and impatient You can imagine a a doctor that's short-tempered, that lacks any sympathy, lacks any empathy. The way that he treats you, it seems like he couldn't care less that you're in pain. He couldn't care less about what's going on, even while he prescribes medicine and, and tries to help you. And in that moment, would you trust that doctor? Would you trust what he had to say? Well, maybe if he's an expert. But you would know that something isn't right His conduct toward the people that he was caring for didn't line up towards his calling towards them. How much more for Christians? We have been giving the greatest life-saving message 
of all time in the gospel. And our calling is to bring that gospel to the world, to bring a message that is for the healing and for the life and for the good of our neighbors and our friends and our family. And how much would we damage that proclamation of the gospel if it is not matched with a life of love, but instead matched with a life of callousness, of lack of sympathy, of disobedience towards God, not loving neighbor and not loving the God that we proclaim. Does your life line up with your calling? We see this especially in Paul's heartfelt care. Paul really cared for the people that he shared the gospel with. Paul describes his attitude toward them as being like a father with his children. This is something that I'm just now getting to experience for the first time, and it's amazing. My son, Walter, is five months old. He's sitting in the back right there. I'd love for you to meet him. He's adorable. He's wonderful. He wakes you up at three in the morning because he's crying and he's hungry. I've started to learn something about fatherly care for his children. Even when your children frustrate you and drive you crazy, you love them, right? And this lines up so well with Paul's description of himself back in verse 7 when he describes his gentleness being like a nursing mother, right? So he describes his ministry like being a nursing mother and like a caring father. He says, like, I'm a parent toward you. And like any good parent, I love you. And how does he parent this church? Well, it's by exhorting them, by encouraging them, by charging them. Isn't that a part of what it means to be a good parent, is to to train your children, to teach your children, to guide them, to encourage them towards what is good and right and godly and holy and lovely and beautiful? That is your job, right? And that's what Paul does. And so we move from the first point to the second point. First, we see a life that matches our gospel proclamation. Then we see the content of his exhortation toward them, and we see that we must live a life that is worthy of our gospel call. We must live a life that is worthy of our gospel call. So what did Paul exhort or encourage or charge them to do in verse 12? Well, he encouraged them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. To walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There are two W words that I think are really important for us to understand in this verse. The first W word is walk. What does Paul mean when he encourages them and exhorts them to walk? Well, he's not encouraging them to physically walk. My mom is starting an attempt of a hike of the Appalachian Trail at the beginning of March, which is incredible. Um, She's going to be gone for months walking up mountains and down mountains and across rivers from Georgia, and then hopefully, if she might do it in two sections, make it all the way 2,000 miles north to Maine in a couple of years of work. Is that what Paul's calling us to do, to hike up mountains, to walk a path? No. When he says walk, he's actually referring to a way of life. And Paul uses this idea of walking as a way of life throughout his letters. If Paul is to encourage you to walk in wisdom, what that means is to live a life that is marked by being wise. Live in a wise way. So that's what it means when he says walk. The second W word, though, is worthy. 
Walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, at first glance, when you see that word worthy, you might think that what Paul is saying is that we need to earn God's love, that we need to clean ourselves up. We need to make ourselves good enough for God, and then maybe if we're good enough, God will accept us. Maybe if we try hard enough, God will love us. But that's not what Paul means. He's using the word worthy here to mean in keeping with or in line with. It's actually where I got the title for this sermon, living in line, right? So he says live worthy, saying live in keeping with your identity. Live in a way that lines up with your calling in the gospel. We actually just talked about this in one of our Bible studies for the church plant as we're going through the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul uses almost identical language. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, the first W word, to walk in a manner worthy, the second W word, of the calling to which you have been called, right? And as we talked about what it means to live in a way that is worthy of our calling, I used the example of the movie The Princess Diaries, and I'm not ashamed to mention the movie The Princess Diaries, okay? I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's a little older now. The main character, played by Anne Hathaway, finds out that she's a princess, that she is the heir to the throne of Genovia, this made-up country for the movie. But what makes the movie interesting is that her personality is the complete opposite of the personality of a princess. The way that she acts, the way that she lives, the things that she likes, she's not a princess, right? And throughout the movie, the challenge is that she has to learn how to live like a princess, how to mold her way of life to line up with what she's just found out about who she is and what her calling is. Imagine if you found out today that you are the heir of the throne to some random country that we've never heard of. You found out you're a king. You found out you're a a queen, a prince, or a princess. Would that change the way that you carry yourself? The way that you physically walk, but also the way that you live? The way that you live and the way that it lines up with who you have found out that you now are? Well, that's what it means to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel, We walk in a way that is worthy of our new identity, worthy of who we are now as Christians. And specifically, Paul calls them to walk in a way that is worthy of two things that we now now have, that we are now in possession of in the gospel. He calls them to walk in a way that is worthy of the kingdom and worthy of glory. So first he lists the kingdom. When God saves us, We need to know that God does more than just wipe away our sins. And he does wipe away our sins. Praise the Lord that God wipes away our sins by the blood of Jesus in the gospel. But he does more than just that. When Jesus Christ saves a sinner, he saves a citizen. He saves someone to live as a member of his kingdom. Jesus came to earth to live for you to die for you in your place and for your sin, to rise from the dead for you so that he would save you as a citizen of his kingdom. There's a reason that so often in the Bible the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is good news about a kingdom that you are a part of if you belong to Jesus. To live 
in line with the gospel is to live knowing who your king is. Do you know who your king is? Lexi, my wife, and I are listening again through the Chronicles of Narnia books. I like to do that every few years because they're just so good. And one of my favorite things about the Chronicles of Narnia is the way that people react to Aslan when they meet him. This great, terrifying, frightening, powerful, deadly lion. But for people that belong to Aslan, for citizens of Narnia, when they see this king, they're not only terrified, but there's this way that they're just drawn to him. And the way that C.S. Lewis describes that, that inward draw toward Aslan, it's like they just want to walk up, they want to run their fingers through his mane, they just want to give him a big hug, they just want to look at and behold the, the wonder of this great king of theirs. We have a good king in Jesus, a king who's not a tyrant in how he rules over us, but a king that rules us with love, a king that we are drawn to, a king that is ours in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his beauty, and all of his love for us as his citizens. He is our king. Do you know that he is your king? Do you live like he is your king or do you live like you are your king? Do you live like your lake house up north in Wisconsin is your king? Do you live like the Green Bay Packers are your king? Do you live like your job is your king? Do you live like your children are your king? Even good things. Do you know that Jesus alone is your king and he alone is owed your allegiance? Do you know who your king is? We need to walk in a way that is worthy of, our, of the kingdom and of our glorious king. We also need to walk in a way that is worthy of glory. The glory that Paul mentions here is the glory that is promised to us when our King Jesus returns to make all things new. It's a glory that awaits all of those who trust in Jesus. And it's a glory that is better. Better than anything you have tasted, better than anything you have seen, better than anything you have touched, better than anything you have experienced in this life is the glory that awaits those who have trusted in Jesus we don't just live in a way that is worthy of this world. We live in a way that is worthy of that world, the world and kingdom of glory. One way to say that is that we are to live with our eyes lifted up. We are to live with our eyes fixed out forward on the kingdom that awaits when Jesus returns. And we are to live with that kingdom for fixly, uh, for, uh, fixed firmly in our gaze. That is where we look and that is what we strive and walk to. Perhaps you've heard it said that you can be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good, right? That you can think so much about that world and that life that you're pretty much useless here. One of my favorite things about the books of First and Second Thessalonians is that they blow that idea completely out of the water. Because what Paul does in these two books that you're walking through is he grounds the foundation of the Christian life not only backwards in what Jesus has already accomplished in his life and his death and his res resurrection. It also grounds and founds the present Christian life forwards in what Jesus will accomplish, accomplish when he returns. We are to live in light of that. And in that way, I actually think that it's the person that is the most heavenly-minded that is the most earthly good. 
C.S. Lewis famously wrote in Mere Christianity about this very topic. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. I love that. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. And he goes on, the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Let me read that one one more time. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And then he ends with a famous quote that maybe you've heard, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. I love that. By God's grace in Jesus Christ, lost and helpless sinners are called into a kingdom and they are given a new hope of glory. Let us live in a way that reflects those realities, brothers and sisters. And if you don't know the wonders of being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom or the hope of glory in Jesus, then know that these things can be yours in Jesus. That these can be your possession, a kingdom that you can be a part of, a glory that can be your hope. But not because you make yourself worthy. Not because you try hard enough. Because in our sin, we have a problem that we can't fix. We have a stain that we cannot remove. But Jesus can deal with it. Jesus can wash away your sin. Jesus can make you righteous because of his perfect life, because of his death in your place. These things become ours not because we're worthy, but because we trust in Jesus who is worthy for us. Do you know this great king? And do you know this great glory? So again, let us live a life that matches our gospel proclamation and a life that is worthy of our gospel call. And lastly, let us live a life that displays gospel power. Let us live a life that displays gospel power. Paul has a shift here in verses 13 through 16 where he was talking about himself and he was talking about how he went about his ministry toward them. But now in these verses, he talks about how they received his ministry to them. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What sets apart these believers is how they heard Paul's preaching. That even though they were physically hearing the words and voice of Paul, that they knew that they were hearing something beyond that. They knew that they weren't just hearing the words of a man, but that they were hearing in a very real way the words of God. They were hearing God himself speak to them. And so they accepted his preaching as the word of God, right? I love that it says they, they accepted his preaching as what it really was, the word of God. Do you know that God speaks in the gospel? 
And when the gospel is preached, people will hear one of two things. People will either hear the words of men or the words of God. Paul's opponents clearly heard in his preaching the words of man. At least they thought they did. They thought, this guy's just making this stuff up, isn't he? He's trying to sell us something. He can't be trusted. I don't like this guy. Don't listen to him. But the Thessalonian believers heard something different. They heard in Paul's preaching and in the gospel God's own good news of salvation for lost and helpless sinners. What do you hear when you hear the gospel? Do you hear the words of men or do you hear the words of God? Because you can actually hear the gospel and respond to it positively yet only still receive it as the words of men. To think that's really interesting. That's worth studying. I want to know more about that. Hmm, Maybe I should go get a theology degree, which, of course, I love theology. It's wonderful. But the gospel is not just the words of men, something interesting, some historical artifact to study. You can hear it that way. But when you hear the gospel, do you hear God? Do you hear God himself speaking words of life to your weary soul? Do you hear the words that you have always needed to hear? Do you hear God? And guess what? Guess what? When God speaks, God does something. When God talks, God works. The words of God carry power. It was the words of God that actually called this whole world into being back in Genesis 1. God spoke and it was. And it's the same God who speaks life into dead hearts. It's the same God who speaks and gives hearts of flesh where there was once hearts of stone. It is the God who speaks and brings us to life in the gospel. The word of God is actually at work. The word of God actually does something. Do you know that? Look at how Paul says the same thing in his other letters. In Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In Paul's mind, what is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God to save. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That hearing the gospel is actually what works by the Holy Spirit, faith in us, so that we would trust in our Savior. 1 Corinthians 1.18. And I love this because it highlights the two different ways of hearing this gospel message, right? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This should give us incredible confidence in our evangelism. I believe that's the focus for Jacob's Well this year as a church. I don't know the exact wording of your focus this year, but it's something along the lines of bringing the gospel to your neighbors or your coworkers, bringing the gospel to Green Bay and the surrounding cities, right? One of my biggest fears in evangelism, and this is coming as, as someone who's done evangelism for years, shared the gospel many times, who has a seminary degree, like I should be able to explain the gospel with this wonderful eloquence, right? Because I have the training. But one of my biggest fears is that I won't be persuasive enough when I share the gospel. 
that I won't have all of the right arguments. I won't be able to answer every question. I won't be able to convince somebody into the kingdom of Jesus, right? As if that power resides in me anyway, right? I'll never be the expert. I'll never be a Dan Jackson at talking with non-Christians. That's a standard that's just too high for me to achieve. I'll never be that good. But remember, the power to save your neighbor, the power to save your friend, your, your fellow student if you're in school, your coworker, the power to save you, it doesn't reside in you. It's not a power that belongs to you. It's a power that resides in the simple message of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at that. Paul decided to know nothing among them except Jesus and him crucified. Jesus was a one-thing man. One thing mattered to Paul. One thing is what would come out of his mouth when he preached, and that was Jesus. It was Jesus and his crucifixion and the life that we can have through Jesus Christ. But look at how he describes the way that he proclaimed this message. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is Paul speaking. This is probably the greatest evangelist of all of church history. This is the man who planted church after church throughout the Roman Empire, the man who proclaimed the gospel to governors and to kings. Yet when he thinks about the power of God to save, he doesn't think about his own persuasiveness. He doesn't think of his own wisdom. In fact, he thinks of his own weakness. He thinks of his own foolishness, of the foolishness of the message that he proclaims. None of his hope is in himself. His hope is only in the gospel message that he shares. Be encouraged when you share the gospel that the power resides not in you, but in the simple message that you proclaim. That simply declaring the simple and basic truths of the gospel is how our God has decided to work in the world to bring people to himself and to give them salvation. Be encouraged. God is at work wherever his gospel is proclaimed. And in the final verses of this chapter, we see one of the things that this word or this gospel did among the Thessalonians. It was at work. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul talked about how the gospel was at work because it turned them from idols to serve the living and the true God. It had converted them, right? And often when we think about the power of the gospel, it's that power to convert someone, to turn us from our sin, to turn us from our idols, and turn us to God. Praise the Lord. But here, when he thinks about the power of the gospel and how it's displayed in them, what does he think of? He actually thinks of their suffering. And this might be a little bit counterintuitive for us at first, 
that the power of God was actually displayed in them in their ability to patiently endure suffering in the name of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 14, it says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. What Paul is showing us here is that there will always be opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherever it is proclaimed, but that Jesus Christ will always, in the end, have the victory. Paul says that the churches in Judea suffered for the gospel from their countrymen, the Jews, and some people have critiqued this passage and said that Paul is being anti-Semitic in the way that he describes Jews. I actually think it couldn't be farther from the truth to say that Paul is being anti-Semitic. First of all, Paul is a Jew, right? We actually see in, in a part of the book of Romans this astounding statement from Paul that he says that he would be willing to be cast into hell if it meant the salvation of his Jewish brothers and sisters. I actually can't think of a greater love than to say that I would willingly undergo the torments of hell if it meant you could be saved. And that's the way that Paul loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. He loved them and he longed for them to be saved. So he's not being anti-Semitic here. What he's actually saying is that wherever the gospel goes, in that place, it is opposed by those who do not believe. So he says the churches in Judea, where the Jews lived, he said that The churches in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews, but he also says, you in Thessalonica, you've suffered in the same way from your countrymen. Don't be surprised wherever the gospel goes, whether in Judea or Thessalonica or Rome or Wisconsin, the gospel's going to be opposed. It's not like something wrong is happening. This is actually what you ought to expect. But the way that Christians endure suffering is actually one of the signs of the power of the gospel at work in them. Because when we suffer for Jesus Christ, we're being enabled to suffer for our suffering Savior. That's why Paul brings up the suffering of Jesus in verse 15. If our king bore a cross for us, should we find it strange that we bear crosses too? Actually, I think it would be strange if we followed a suffering savior and a suffering king and we didn't experience suffering in this life. Talk about a life that lines up with the gospel that we proclaim. Do we think that we can proclaim the gospel of a suffering and dying crucified savior and then not think that we will suffer for that message as well? Perhaps that is the greatest way in our life that our life will line up with the gospel that we proclaim. Perhaps the most significant way that God will empower you through the gospel is not to accomplish great and glorious, grand things for Jesus, but to suffer great things for Jesus. Have you thought about that? In your day-to-day suffering, in the opposition that we see in our world to the gospel, do you see an opportunity to display the glories and wonders of your great suffering king? And do you see that that is actually one of the greatest things that God's power might ever enable you to do, is to suffer for Jesus? Because the counterintuitive wisdom of the gospel is that power is displayed in suffering. 
that victory is won through apparent defeat, that life is given through the death of the Savior. Do we see that gospel displayed not only in what we say, but in our life as we suffer with hope and faith and endurance? Let me end with these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Let this be an encouragement to you. But we have this treasure. What is the treasure that he talks about? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, we have this treasure, this gospel in jars of clay. It's a description of us, that we're fragile, that we're weak. We're like a little clay jar you can drop on the ground and it bursts to pieces. We're not strong. The wisdom of God is that we bear this incredibly beautiful and priceless treasure in this seemingly fragile, insignificant shell. You think that a treasure would be born in this grand carriage and locked behind walls in this vault, right? That what carries this message, that what carries this treasure would match the beauty of it. But the wisdom of God is that we carry a treasure in jars of clay. And why do we carry this treasure, this gospel, in jars of clay in our weakness and our frailty? It's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's God's power. It's not me. And how does he end? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Brothers and sisters, may we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus would be manifested in us. Amen. May this be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ, a good king. And not just any king, but a king who dies. A king who comes and suffers for his people. And a king who rises in victory and gives us hope of glory. Oh, Father, help us to live our lives in a way that is worthy of our king and the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. And help our lives and our words to go together. Help us to speak and to proclaim the simple and true and beautiful, glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to trust that you work in it. And so we pray, Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for Jacob's well. I pray for each of the people here as they are heralds of the gospel, that as the gospel goes forward here in Green Bay, that you would work in it that you would draw people to yourself, that you would save citizens for your kingdom. O Lord, be glorified in this church and in your people, though they may be just simple jars of clay. We We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.